Good morning. Good morning, children. We're going to be looking now at 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1 and verses 2 through 10. This is part 2 of a message entitled, Knowing Beloved Brethren, Your Election by God. Now in last week's passage, I think this might be a little loud. Let's... uh, can we take it down? I don't. How does it sound out there to you? Pretty loud, yeah. And we need to help Rick learn how to hold that mic up close to his mouth there, and then we won't. <laughs> yeah, they when they when I was in Bible college, they they taught us, you know, you had to treat it like a lollipop, you know, hold it right there close. That way, you won't get a lot of feedback, and you'll get a nice, nice clear sound. So. Last week we read this passage, and I'll go ahead and uh, reread this because it sets the context for what we do next. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And now for today's passage, continuing the thought, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, And then that is because, in verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivereth us from the wrath of to come. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the riches of your word, and we ask now, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wondrous things in your word that would feed our souls and give direction, Lord, to our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we might live for you, that we might proclaim you, that we might Lord, cherish you in our relationship with you and with one another. And we give you all the praise and all the glory, and we ask this in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we saw last week that election means being chosen by God. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. God has chosen you. Uh, In this case, you've been chosen to be one of God's children. 
And we saw that in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4, that this is clearly taught in the scriptures. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And so as we saw the doctrines of election and of predestination are uh, beyond what our human minds, our finite human minds can comprehend. We saw that the doctrines of grace all linked together. They all are tied to one another. You cannot remove one without disrupting all the others. You know, some have tried to say, well, I'm a, I'm a 3.5 Calvinist. It doesn't work that way. If any one of these doctrines is true, they all have to be true. It's just a matter of taking the time to think it through. And so we saw we can, we can move irresistible grace up to the second in the list. We can move limited atonement over and give it a new name, particular redemption. We can take un, un, unconditional election and move it down to where it actually occurs in our experience. And we have turned tulip into tip-up. And so there you have it. Now, unconditional election is clearly taught in the Bible. I thought I would go to another passage this week in order to demonstrate this. This is a troubling passage. This is one of those passages when I'm talking to young Christians, I will tell them right up front, if this doesn't bother you, you just don't understand what it's saying. You know, we, don't, we need to be careful that we don't present to young people, especially young Christians, uh, that these things are all just going to make perfect sense to you because God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is above us, beyond us. He's beyond the universe itself. And so in Romans chapter 9 and verses 10 through 16, we read, and not only this, now Paul's making the case for election in this passage. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even our father, Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, if you can get anything out of this passage other than we are chosen by God, not on the basis of our merits, but purely on the basis of his love in choosing us, then you're just, uh, you just don't understand the English grammar. It's here. It's there. It's very important. And as Paul says, God is not unrighteous in this. 
because we all deserve to be condemned. He has chosen to save some, but he has not in any way been unrighteous toward anyone. He's simply doing what he has the absolute right to do as our creator. And so, how can Paul know who is elect? Well, we saw last week a work of faith, a labor of love, a patience of hope, a gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a new life that mimics Christ's life, and a joy that soars above circumstances. And now this week we're going to look at the final four here, a behavior that is exemplary, a witness that is strong, blaring, and ongoing, a new allegiance to God as his happy slaves, and finally, a glad willingness to wait in hope of Christ's return. And all of these things begin and end as a work of faith, as we see in Romans 1, verse 5, and again in Romans 16, verse 26. It all begins as faith, and everything that we see is just a working out of the obedience of faith in our lives. Because we believe, all of these things make perfect sense. If, these, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then none of this would make any sense at all. And as Paul said, we of all people would be most to be pitied because we're living as though we have a hope and a future that would not be real unless Christ has in fact risen from the dead and we have believed that. Remember that it all begins with believing the truth of the gospel. So when we have been born again by faith alone, through grace alone, our obedience of faith eventually shows up in all of the following ways. So, number one, or number seven in our list, number one for today, a behavior that is exemplary. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 we read, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now the word example here is the word tupos. It means an exact reproduction. You became model Christians to others to follow. The imitators had now gone on to become worth imitating uh, themselves. Now the, the Thessalonian Christians were not perfect, so don't misread these things that Paul's observing as, as though they had arrived. He claimed that he himself had not arrived. And so certainly they have not arrived. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 9, he says, Night and day I'm praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So there are still some things that are lacking in their faith. And Paul looks forward to seeing them again and being able to uh, continue to uh, build them up in their faith. So the evidence of God's grace as saving faith and election was seen in them because their lives had become an illustration, an example of what it should look like for every believer to be a believer. And so it's important that we look at the example that we're setting we want to be a good example, not a bad example. 
And we have both referred to in Paul's letters. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17 reads, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So Paul would, would be thinking of the Thessalonians at this point. These are those that are, are walking in the same way that Paul was walking. But then he has this to add. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now this phrase, set their mind, uh, is a very intense phrase. It means that's all they care about. All they're concerned with is things that are of the earth, of temporal importance, but not of eternal importance. So Paul is referring here to people who identify themselves as Christians. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any any, uh, tendency to follow their example. He's saying these are people that are a bad example of what it means to be a Christian. These are people who are not willing to live for eternity. They want only the temporal benefits of being associated with Christ's church. Now we see this in a lot of different ways today. If you've ever been in a large church, what they would call a mega church, you'll meet a lot of people who are there for all the wrong reasons. They're there to make contact with people so that they can sell them a car or, or get them to join their downline in their multi-level marketing program, or, or maybe they're, they're just looking for people that will join their political cause. But they're not there because they love Christ, and they're certainly not there to join in in carrying the cross of Christ daily and following him. To be a good example is to be like Christ. And Christ told us in John 15 and verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so we we need to take stock of the fact that sometimes people can believe themselves to be the friends of Christ, but they are enemies of the cross of Christ. The people Paul's referring to are not enemies of Christ himself. They are happy to identify themselves as Christian, but they do so for temporal benefits, for the social benefits. If you go to the South or to uh, the Midwest, you'll find what is referred to as the Bible Belt. And in the Bible Belt, people don't ask you if you go to church. They ask you where you go to church. The assumption is everybody goes to church, and the church is often filled with hypocrisy there. That's the danger. When the church dominates a culture, it becomes a magnet for hypocrites. People want to use the church 
as a way to ride themselves, drive themselves into a position of, of uh, influence or power. This is why in all ages of church history, when the church has dominated the culture, it has become a magnet for hypocrisy and for false converts and people who simply want to use the church. Now, when the church is under persecution, these people don't show up. They're not here to suffer for Jesus. They are here to, like parasites, benefit without contributing. They are enemies of the very idea that Christ would require them to take up their own cross daily and follow him in a life of having to endure persecution. You see, now where is this coming from? It's coming from Christ himself in Luke chapter 9 and verses 23 through 27. Now, I could make a whole sermon out of this and I have to be careful not to, but the cross that we are to bear is not catching a cold. It is not stubbing your toe. It is not getting fired for disrespect. Okay. The cross that we bear is the consequences, the negative, painful consequences of voluntarily being identified publicly as a Christian. That is the cross that we bear. If we take up the cross daily and follow Christ, we are announcing to the world, I am a Christian. If you don't like him, you won't like me. And I'm ready for that. And in fact, I rejoice in that. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, Jesus said to them all, notice he emphasized, this is for everybody, not just the disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, that means follow me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me, notice we're getting to the point here. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Jesus is coming back and we are going to want to be unashamed when he returns and we want him to be unashamed of us when he returns. Now this is not something that's intended just to make us feel guilty. The Thessalonian Christians were bearing their cross as well, but they were not doing it with the idea that they had to perform, but rather that they simply had to be the believers that they were, open and loud. And that, as we're going to see, is what they did. They were a witness that is strong, blaring, and ongoing. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. This reminds me of my early days <clears throat> in the Jesus movement. We were annoying to people who didn't want to hear about Jesus. We were a wonderful breath of revival fresh air 
to those sleepy little churches that had just been so comfortable with just the people they knew. And here come those Jesus freaks. And we're going to bring life and loudness and excitement and enthusiasm into this uh, little country church on the edge of town. Do, 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 do. People come in everywhere for miles around. What was it? For witness and for Sunday school. And it's very plain to see. It's not the way it used to be. I'm quoting from Love Song. Some of you may have been around at that time. That was one of the first Christian music albums to come out. And we lived that song. It was, it, that song was about our way of life. We lived to proclaim the glory of God. This word sounded forth in the Greek is used only here in the New Testament. But it means to trumpet out loud. It means to sound forth very strongly. Now, if you'll come to Silverton any day of the week, around 12 noon, just, to, just before 12 noon, you will get an idea of what this sounds like. Because right across the street from my home is the, uh, is the fire alarm, air raid warning horn up high on a pole next to the police and the station and the, and the city hall there. And that thing goes off for about five seconds. And if you're outside, you've got your fingers in your ear because it is loud. It is blaring out very strongly. And we're being told by Paul that this is the way these Thessalonian Christians were, were behaving. They were, they were a, a witness that was strong. It was blaring and it was ongoing. Imagine the, the horn doesn't go, go off after five seconds. It just keeps going and going and going. And everybody in town is saying, what is that? What's going on? That is the way it ought to be when Christians are in town. What is that? What is going on? What's all the hubbub about? Oh, these people, all they want to talk about is Jesus and what he's done for them and how their lives have been changed. And they're telling all these stories about miracles and things that God is doing and things that are going to happen and that we need to be ready for that. Is it any wonder that so many came to Christ during that time? It's because it was an ongoing thing. The idea is a strong, aggressive, trumpet-like preaching of the gospel. And with the understanding that it was not their, their articulation, it was not their, their uh, oratory, it wasn't their style of speaking, it was the, the content of their message. That the Holy Spirit would then take and drive home by the power that only the Holy Spirit has. And this was not only in their little town there of, of Thessalonica, this was all over Macedonia and Achaia. And, and then he says, and also in every place. And so when we look at uh, the map of the various precincts or the various territories of the Roman Empire, the provinces, you'll notice that we have Thessalonica uh, is here in Macedonia. 
And then we have Achaia down here, south of Macedonia. And they are sounding forth the gospel, not only in Macedonia, but also in Achaia and even beyond. Now, the reason this was happening is because of their location. They are on a trade route. People are coming through Thessalonica, and they hear this blaring proclamation of the gospel and those that believe it or even some of those who don't believe it but just are are leaving town and saying have you heard about what's happening in Thessalonica these people are really enthused they're talking about another king a king named Jesus is that even legal you know these people are delivering the mail very very faithfully and aggressively And Paul says, we have no need to say anything, but I will anyway. And so that's what we get here. We get Paul saying, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. But even though Paul didn't need to say anything, he did anyway, he couldn't resist. Paul was so proud of the Thessalonian Christians. We're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith. Notice how perseverance is mentioned here. The Thessalonians had to pay the price for their loud and ongoing witness. It cost them to be this kind of witness Now, their rewards in eternity will be incredible, amazing. But during their lifetimes, it cost them to be identified with Christ in this way. And I want you all to take stock in that. Paul was so pleased with this little church that he couldn't stop talking about them. But it was their perseverance, as well as their faith, that he was proud of. And so I ask you, is there any gospel proclamation going on in your life? Is there enough evidence that if, if there were a sudden takeover by the communists or some other you know, anti-Christian group, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law of being a Christian? Or would you be acquitted for lack of evidence? Even though you confessed to the police, oh yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Take me away. I'm sorry, sir, but I I just don't see any evidence that you're a Christian. Think about that. If somebody tells you they're a Christian, but they have no interest in talking to anyone else about Christ... Would you have good reason to question that person's salvation? You would. But the same is true for you. If you tell people that you are a Christian, but you have no interest in talking to anyone else about Christ, you have good reason to question your own salvation as well. Now, don't think this is works. This is not works. This is Because proclamation is a fundamental evidence of election. 
People who are truly saved care deeply about the salvation of others. We are not trying to talk you into going out and doing more. We are asking you to be what you really are. And if what you really are is not a Christian, then you need to do something about that. But if you really are a Christian, then you can yield to the Holy Spirit, stop quenching the Holy Spirit, stop letting the fear of man and the fear of their faces keep you quiet when you ought to be speaking out. This is not a matter of feeling guilty. It is simply a matter of what you really believe. Do you believe Jesus really rose from the dead? Answer? Yeah. Okay, let's try that again. Do you believe Jesus really rose from the dead? Okay. Do you believe that he is Lord over everything? Okay. Do you believe that he has the authority to draft you into his evangelistic campaign and commission you to live as his ambassador to this world? Okay. Will you be glad you obeyed him when you stand before him on judgment day when he returns? Can you see the logic of this? Wisdom is the ability to see how one thing relates to another in God's purposes. And so if you can see how each of these statements relates to one another in his purposes, you are going to evangelize enthusiastically. And whatever the personality issues you may have, well, I'm a quiet person, I'm not that way, we need to place evangelism outside of the area of giftedness and place it in the area of obligation. Now imagine for a moment that a a guy, uh, a new Christian, new believer in the church, comes to the elders of the church and he says, you know, I've been reading this passage that talks about husbands loving their wives and providing for their families and, and raising their kids and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but that's just not my gifting. I mean, that's just way outside my comfort zone. I can't do that. I I just can't. It's just not in me. How would we counsel that person? (laughs) We would explain to him, you may not ever be very good at it, but you will always be responsible for it. So do the best you can, buddy. You know, love your wife, raise your kids, make that living. We'll help you. We'll encourage you. We'll counsel you. We'll try to make introductions. We'll, we'll sit down with you and try to figure out how to make this work. But there is no gifting that is a prerequisite to doing what is your God-given responsibility. So do not say, I would have witnessed, but it's not my gift. Every one of us, we are ambassadors for Christ. And your personality is ideally suited for reaching the people that God is going to bring across your path. And if you need backup, you can call in backup. You know, if you say, I need somebody who's a little bolder than I am, then call Brian, right? Say, Brian, I got somebody here and uh, I've shared the gospel with him, but I think he needs a little bit more uh, of what you've got. And Brian will come running and, and, and you'll... tag team this person, right? 
One prays while the other talks, and then the other one prays while the other one talks. And you both listen a lot, and you respond to what the person is saying, what they're asking. And one prays while the other speaks, and the other speaks while the other prays. And eventually you come to church the next Sunday with a friend that you can introduce to the church and say, this is our new brother or sister in Christ. Now, continuing on on the same idea is number nine. A new allegiance to God as his happy slaves. Now, slavery is not something we can easily defend in the modern world. You know, nobody says, hey, let's go back to chattel slavery. Let's, let's just put certain people into chains and make them work in our fields. No, we don't, we don't do that. We don't agree with that. But don't think that there's less slavery in the world than there was at the time of Christ. Because there's slavery all over the world. It's all around us here in the United States. There, there are people who cannot leave. Their passports have been taken away from them. Their documents are gone. They're entirely dependent upon their captors. They're working in factories and and, in farming situations where they cannot quit. Others are working in illicit uh, industries, drugs, sex, all the rest. There's slavery all around us. It is not legal slavery as it was at this time. But it's there. But when God's word talks about slavery, it's talking about serving whoever it is that you yield yourself to. And these people were slaves to idols. They were enslaved to the fear that if they didn't give enough deference to and honor to a particular idol, that that, the God behind that idol would come after them and they would have at the very least, bad luck, and at the very worst, a curse. And so they're enslaved. We can say, well, that's silly. That's just superstition. Well, not if demons are real. If demons are real and the demons are behind these idols and creating these anecdotal stories of how somebody disrespected a particular idol and then something horrible happened then you can see how people could be constantly living in fear. But when the Thessalonican Christians turned to God, in the very process of turning, they turned away from their idols. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And one evidence of election is that you have turned away from any old master that you had in the past to serve a new master. As Bob Dylan said in one of his more lucid moments in his songwriting, you've got to serve somebody. And it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And so that is the truth. We are all of us as human beings in a relationship of service. Let me prove that with a kind of a trick question here. When Jesus came into the world, what form did he take according to scripture? 
he took upon himself the form of a servant. It says a servant. It could have said a man. It would have meant the same thing. But it says specifically, he took upon himself the form of a servant. When you look in the mirror, you are looking at the form of a servant. You are made to serve. You were created to serve. And you were created to serve the true and living God who loves you. And it is an honor to serve in the household of our Creator. So, when we say that you were intended to be happy slaves, we mean that. You're intended to be joyfully serving the true and living God, knowing that He is not an abusive master, He's not an exploitive master. Everything that He asks of us, He asks for our own good and for His greater glory. Everything that he refuses us, he refuses in order to protect us from harms that he wants us to avoid. But there's nothing in his plan or purpose in our lives that is against our own good. In fact, he works everything together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So, welcome, slaves. Now, choose your master. You're going to serve somebody. Who are you going to serve? I encourage you. I implore you. I plead with you to serve the true and living God. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him. Because his yoke is easy. And his burden, there is a burden, but his burden is light. And you will find rest for your soul. A rest you will not find anywhere else. So have you turned to God? This word epistrefo, epistrefo. I'm wonderful at Greek. I actually did pretty well in Greek in college, but somehow just, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. Epistrefo. This is a verb used in the book of Acts and a number of other places. It always refers to turning. Uh, It's conversion. It's a little different from repentance. In James chapter 9, verse 19 to 20, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, that's the word, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. By turning to God, you are at the same time turning away from whatever you used to follow. I mean, try it sometime. I cannot be facing this screen and facing you at the same time. If I turn away from this screen, I am automatically turning toward you. So to turn away from idols is to turn to the true and living God. And you cannot continue to serve those idols and focus on those idols and at the same time be focusing on God. So you are now going to be doing the opposite and going in the opposite direction. I like to use the illustration of the guy who's, uh, you know, Paul is talking about somebody in the church who was stealing. Okay? And I think this is in Ephesians. He says, let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands the thing which is good 
in order that he may have something to share with others in their time of need. Now, if you follow the logic of that passage, he's saying, I want you to stop stealing, but don't just stop stealing, start earning. Turn away from stealing and turn to earning. And not even then is it for yourself, you're going to turn to earning so that you have something to give away. As opposed to being a a thief who steals what belongs to others, you're going to be turning and giving what you actually own rightfully to the needs of others. That is what turning looks like. That's what turning looks like. So you don't just stop doing what's wrong. You start doing what's right, and you do it with the same enthusiasm that you used to use when you were doing things wrong. Can you see what an adventure that makes, life? And what a dangerous thing it is for Satan to tempt you to sin for him? Because if he tempts you to do something that's wrong, your response will not just to say no, but it will be to do the very opposite. So Satan says, don't talk to that person about Jesus. He'll think you're crazy. Oh, you don't want me to talk to him about Jesus? Watch this, Satan! And then off you go and you just do the opposite. Satan says, don't ever tell anybody that you've had an abortion because they'll reject you and they won't want to be your friend. You don't want me to tell anybody about my abortion and how I regret it? Oh, you just watch, devil. I am going to turn, I'm going to start an organization. I'm going to go on a campaign. I might get elected someday with this very story. Satan, I thank you for the idea. That's the way turning looks. It's fun. It makes life an adventure. It makes it very dangerous for Satan to tempt you to do anything because he knows there you go again. You're going to do the opposite of what he's trying to get you to do. You turned to God from your idols. This new allegiance that submits happily to God as his slaves is another evidence that you've been chosen by God for salvation. And you are serving the true and the living God. The word serve here in this passage is the word for abject slavery. Duoleo. Olu. Duoleu. Boy, I, I slaughter Greek. It's Greek to me. <laughs> it means a bond slave, which was the lowest level of slavery at that time. The Thessalonians turned from being miserable bond slaves to idols to instead becoming the happy slaves of the one true and living God. No one ever truly turns to saving faith in Jesus without, in some sense, agreeing to turn around and gladly submit to God. Now this brings us to the issue of glad submission to another as a clear evidence of salvation. God's elect acknowledge to God and to the public. This is what baptism was really all about. So that the entire reason for their existence is now to serve God in every way. During the Jesus movement, we used to have our baptisms at the public pool or in, the, in, you know, in a river or a, a, a stream or, or a lake where there's lots of people around, lots of unbelievers around. You know, we got baptized in the ocean. Sometimes you get baptized before you were ready in the ocean, right? Because here comes a big wave. But the point is that the baptism was a chance to announce to the public, I'm a follower of Jesus. 
I've been born again, and I am, I am not ashamed to identify myself with God and with these people who are here with me celebrating as I'm baptized. Bonnie and I were out at Silver Falls State Park a few weeks ago, and one of the churches right here from Salem was out there baptizing a bunch of guys who had come off the streets, come off their drugs, had come into a new life in Christ, and these guys were tattooed. Uh, every visible part of their body was tattooed, and they're out there singing hallelujah and going down in the water and coming up shouting. And then afterwards, I asked one of them, you know, just to see, you know, what he understood to be going on. I said, so what was going on over there? And he says, oh, oh, Jesus, Jesus saved me. I used to be on drugs. My, my, one of my daughters died because I, you know, and, and now I'm a, a Christian and God has forgiven me. And I, this guy was so enthusiastic. That's what it looks like to turn from idols, to serve as a servant, as a slave, the true and living God. John Calvin wrote, Only the man who has learned to put himself wholly in subjection to God is truly converted to him. That's pretty strong. This is referring to lordship salvation. The act of conversion, according to Leon Morris, the act of conversion involves a change of direction of the will. There is a decisive happening, a reorientation of the whole of life. This is so in every age. The most characteristic thing about salvation is not the continuity of life, but the decisive break. It's a clear break with the past and a clear engagement with an entirely new future because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. In Romans 10 verse 9 we read, Because you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not just referring to the ability to articulate the words. We're talking about saying it from your heart. You can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit. There is no salvation in merely receiving Jesus as Savior while consciously hanging on to your idols and rejecting him as your Lord and King. This is not a work. This is a result of being saved. Now, I don't, I don't want to go too far with this, but I, I, I am especially concerned with people who say, I am going to get my fire insurance so I can go to heaven, but I have no intention of changing my ways. No intention of listening to Jesus, following him, obeying him, none of that. I just want to go to heaven. Sorry, doesn't work that way. If you're truly saved... Uh, you, will, you will want Jesus to be your Lord. If you don't want Jesus to be your Lord, you're going to hate heaven. You know, you're not going to be able to enjoy heaven because Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. So, I hope that you take this to heart. And when you're witnessing to people, we're not wanting to 
you know, draw them into a, bu a bunch of rules and things they have to do, but we want them to at least acknowledge that in order for Jesus to be your Savior, you must receive him as Lord. When you say Jesus is Lord, and you're believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, now that is a saving faith, and God will honor that. So, number 10, a glad willingness to wait in hope of Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The elect are known by the fact that they are unashamedly, unapologetically waiting for Christ to actually return from heaven. For him to come back to earth, to complete the establishment of his kingdom, which has already started, and the very fact that you are now in the kingdom as a believer, and his will is being done to some degree on your little part of earth as it is in heaven, he's going to consummate that. He's going to complete it. That which he started in you, he will complete. When we see him, we will be like him. That's when it's all done. And we're totally transformed and no longer even having the sins of the flesh tempting us anyway, anymore. Now by implication, these Christians are waiting for the one whom God raised from the dead, whose name is Jesus. If we're waiting for Jesus to return from heaven, then we are in some sense acknowledging that he's alive and that he's there to come back, right? So when you say, I'm waiting for Jesus to return, you're acknowledging that he rose from the dead and that he's ascended to heaven and that as the angels tell us, he's coming back and that we can bank our lives upon that. This is the one who will rescue us from the righteous wrath of God that is going to come upon the earth when he returns. Now, believing that Christ is coming back is foundational to believing the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 20. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Continuing verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Because he lives, I will also live. Because he's risen from the dead, I also will rise from the dead. He is coming back. And so if this gospel is true, then believing that Jesus is risen and coming back is critical to God's plan of salvation. Without both of these things, we are lost. He is alive. That's one. And he's coming back. That's next. And he really is coming back. Okay. I love this passage in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. These uh, angels show up. Christ, you know, Christ is rising up. 
up into the clouds, disappearing into the clouds. And then the apostles look, and here's these guys standing there in, in, in white. And they said to him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I think angels have a sense of humor. You know, Hey, what are you guys looking at? Why are you standing looking up and gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Why is this important? Because there will be many false Christs at the end time. There will be many who will show up saying, I am the Christ. Oh, so how'd you get here? I drove up in my Cadillac. I'm the Christ. Believe in me. Watch me do miracles. Jesus warned us about this. And so it says when he returns, every eye will see him. How is that possible? God is going to have his son return in such a way that it is undeniably him because he he comes back in the same way he left. And he comes back with angels and trumpets blaring and uh, every eye will see him, it says. Now I'm, I'm convinced that Christ's return is the hope of every true Christian's heart. The difference between the nominal Christian and the true Christian when Christ returns is one, the true Christian will say, oh yes! And the nominal Christian will say, oh no. The nominal Christian doesn't want Jesus to come back. He wants to continue doing what he's doing, living the way he's living. He's living for temporal values, temporal benefits. His God is his belly, his appetites. His mind is entirely on earthly things. He doesn't want Jesus to return. So think about that. Will you love his appearing? As we will see in the, the second coming of Christ is a major theme in both First and Second Thessalonians. Now this secure hope of Christ's return is what sustains the believer in his work of faith and his labor of love. As well as all the other evidences that we see in this list. These are the evidences of being God's elect. And we are, as Paul tells us, we are waiting in hope of receiving an award. Now some people have trouble with this. Paul didn't have any trouble with this. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There is going to be a judgment seat of Christ where everyone will get what they have coming. And for some that will be very good. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. Not only to me. But also 
to all who have loved his appearing. The oh yes crowd. Oh yes! Not the oh no crowd. Christ himself is our ultimate reward. There is no doubt about that. But it is Christ himself who has promised a crown of righteousness will be awarded on a specific day when he judges everyone for what they have done. And that includes all Christians. Your salvation is a free gift. Don't ever doubt that. But the rewards that we will receive, and however this works is still not revealed, there will be rewards for taking up your cross daily and following Christ. Our blessed hope for Christ to appear is real. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness, that's denying ourselves, and worldly lust, that's denying ourselves, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's taking up your cross daily and following Christ. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from, the, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Again, God's elect are zealous for good works, not in order to be saved, nor in order to stay saved, but rather because they are saved. This is who we are now by new nature, zealous for good works. His own special people, by the way, corporately are the bride of Christ. So this is how Paul can tell who the true Christians are in this world. A work of faith, a labor of love, a patience of hope, a gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, a new life that mimics Christ's life and also the life of his apostles, a joy that soars above circumstances, a behavior that is exemplary, a witness that is strong and blaring and ongoing, a new allegiance to God as his happy slaves, and a glad willingness to wait in hope of Christ's return. So I want to offer a pastoral charge. I'm not your pastor, but I am in the ministry of the word this morning. And I want to issue what I would call a pastoral charge. Unless these evidence are obvious to you in your life, your own life, I cannot know whether or not you are one of God's elect. And neither can you. And so... I charge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and on the basis of these passages of Scripture to go to God in prayer and ask him to make all these things real and obvious both to yourself and to others either by saving you now for the first time and only time in your life or by reviving you from your spiritually backslider state. 
Say backslider? Now that's an old word. Hadn't heard that in a while. Well, true Christians can backslide. We read in Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. Same idea, living for this world versus living for eternity. Peter, in his first epistle, uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, I think it's First Peter, he says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. That's where it all starts, faith. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. To brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never, be, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. John MacArthur had this comment in his commentary on this passage that I'd like to close with. Is it possible that a Christian could lose touch with the reality of these things in his life? So he's talking about a Christian, a person who is in fact born again. His answer is yes. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says you need to make sure that you are confident. You need to make your calling and election sure. Not to God, because God already is sure. He already knows your condition. He knows who's elect. But to yourself. And you do that by demonstrating the evidences. Listen, he says. Sin can stop the progress in your life. Sin can tear at the affection you have for Christ. Sin can steal your hope. Sin can make your life look old. Sin can rob you of your joy. Sin can make your behavior something that is the opposite of exemplary. Sin can destroy your witness. Sin can make you disobedient and devastate your allegiance to Christ. Sin can make you not even want to see Jesus return. He doesn't mince words. I, I admire John MacArthur. But you'll notice once again that it all begins with faith. Add to your faith virtue. And it all works together to bring us into the kingdom of God, as Peter says, to bring us in abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord. And so as we continue to study in First and Second Thessalonians, I want you to keep your eye on the present reality of the kingdom of God. And the effects that it has in the life of this small New church.
both in Thessalonica and here in Salem. We are small, but by the Spirit of God we are mighty. And we have the opportunity to let our light shine in ways that maybe we'll have people telling one another, have you heard? Have you heard about what's happening over there in East Salem? How the word of the Lord is sounding out with a blaring, unmistakable, undeniable, unignorable power. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we give you the praise and the glory, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.